People have the mindset that landlords are, you know, these ultra rich, you know, people that can be completely fine without that passive income. But everyone tells you, oh, buy real estate, buy real estate. So you're like, okay, I'm safe. I'll go buy a real estate. Now, during the moratorium of COVID, those people didn't have to pay rent. Right. It doesn't seem so safe, right. does it? All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode nine of Overtime with Nav. Uh, my next guest, super excited to introduce Mr. Itai Beister. Uh, he's a serial entrepreneur and an attorney focusing in um, the real estate space, specifically uh, in evictions. Yeah. Uh, Itai, thank you for joining us. <laughs> Knowing who you are, I know you're a super busy man. When I was, uh, when Itai and I chatted it up a little bit uh, a while ago. I think he took like probably, I think four or five calls. So I, I know you're really busy. So I really appreciate your time and I'm very excited to di dive deep and uh, focus on some really hot topics today. So thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Happy to be here. Great. Uh, you know, let's, let's start from the top, kind of like a, a little bit of your journey here, Itai, because I know you, you do quite a bit, right? I know that you're an attorney. Uh, you focus on unlawful detainers. You actually are part owner uh, of your family business, Jackie's Best, a food manufacturing company. And I know you have a pretty nice Airbnb portfolio as well. And so there's a lot going on for you. And I just want to take a step back, maybe focus first on the attorney side of things and first understand why, why become an attorney? What made you go that route? Uh, you know, give us a little bit of that background. All right. So prior to me becoming an attorney, I worked with my dad in the uh, manufacturing business. And, you know, my dad, I, I was a kid to him. doesn't matter how old you are with your dad. I mean, you could be like 51 or 21. You're always going to be a kid yeah. with your dad. So I, uh, I'd, me and my dad were buttheads. We're very similar personalities. You know, I'm, I'm like a redhead. I, I don't look like a redhead, but, you know, a lot of me is a redhead. When I was a kid, I had a carrot top. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but my dad and I buttheads a lot. He's also a redhead. So we butt heads and I decided that, that I couldn't work with him because working with my dad is not easy. Mm. So at some point I was like, you know what? I don't want to be in your shadow. I'm going to go do my own. And out of nowhere, and, and I didn't go to law school straight from undergrad. You know, I, when I went into law school, I was 30 years old. Oh, wow. Okay. It was a little bit, a little bit later than undergrad. Yeah. And, uh, well, I did a two year program, typically law school's three years. So I did an accelerated program at Southwestern law school. And got my degree, passed the bar, and then all of a sudden, you know, my dad wants to listen to Itai's opinion, right? Now, my opinion matters. Now, I add value. I get this sign of respect <laughs> with my name ending with Esquire. <laughs> oh, sorry. I should have probably, I should have probably added that in there. Itai by Sir. That's okay. <laughs> so, you know, now I'm at a point where I give my dad's respect. And he also went through some like a health scare during that time upon me finishing law school. So he's like, hey, come back to the business. I said, okay, no problem. I go back to the business and I work with my younger brother as well. So me and Asaf, we actually run the day-to-day -day at Jackie. And uh, my father is like semi-retired. You know, he comes in a few times a week, yells at a bunch of people, <laughs> screams, does his thing and leaves. Gets out of yeah, keeps him young. <laughs> uh, and now we're at a point where... You know, we have a well-oiled machine over there. We got a production manager. We have an office manager. We've got line supervisors. The machine runs well. Uh, so that brings up the point where I have some spare time, right? So in the beginning, I was like, okay, let me do some real estate on lawful detainers, also known as evictions. Right. And I started- Maybe really, get into the why, why real estate. Why real estate. So my father, he bought a lot of properties in 2009, which was probably the best time to buy. Yeah. Uh, throughout all the way to like 2015, just little bits, bits of pieces at a time, both commercial and residential property. And we kind of manage those things. You know, me and my older brother were managing these properties, landlord, tenants, you know, you got to draw a lease, you got to take the security deposit, figure out the terms of the lease. And uh, so it's kind of already doing that even before law school, right? It was kind of like a in between. And after finishing law school, uh, I was like, you know, maybe I should do real estate. I'm already, I already kind of understand this business. Um, so I started doing eviction. Uh, how it started, it's funny. I had a family friend be like, hey, 
because at that point I didn't know what I was practicing. I had my bar license, but I don't know what I'm doing, right? Like, how do you know what you're doing when you're first starting out? I mean, you're a CPA, right? Yeah, the general route is to go work under somebody, yeah. right? And get that experience. And if you're ready and if you if you choose to take that leap of entrepreneurial faith, then you probably leverage that experience and go. But it seems like you probably had that experience within just having to manage your dad's portfolio. Yeah. Right. And I can't, I'm a serial entrepreneur, like you said. Yeah. I can't work for somebody. Right. It's not in my in my brain. Like it's not, it doesn't equate. Mm. Like working for my dad was one thing, but it's still a family business, right? right. So there's like, yeah. There's some push and pull there that you can that you can't otherwise do working for the man. Yeah. So, you know, I had a lot of I was like, you know, what, I'll do I'll do landlord tenant stuff on the side. I take on just a random case. I didn't even know what I was doing. I was like, okay, I'll try this eviction. Successful. Get a default judgment, which is basically the tenant didn't respond to the lawsuit. We file, we serve them, sheriff comes in, changes the locks, it's over. Well, sounds like a really good first a first client to yes. ask. Okay, great. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because some other clients can be troublesome. Yeah, I bet. Especially here in California. That's especially here in California. Especially in city of LA. All the fief, I like to call them fiefdoms. Fiefdoms? Yeah. What does that mean? Like a kingdom, you know, or there's like a king, a monarchy in every little city. Why fief? Uh, so I don't know the exact definition of fiefdom, but- it, Is I, it actual? It, yeah, yeah. It's basically like- We'll look that up for, for the audience. Like, yeah, yeah. It's like, uh, like some type of monarchy. Okay. So these cities have their own rules and regulations. That's why they're fiefdoms, because ultimately they're controlling what you can and do as a landlord. Yeah. City of LA, city of Santa Monica, city of West Hollywood, you can even argue city of Inglewood, buried in landlords. All right. If you, you can't just hire any attorney to do anything. If you just call your buddy who's an attorney and be like, hey, help me with this un unlawful detainer, which is an eviction, by the way. That's the that's right. The legal chart. Uh most attorneys have no idea what they're doing. You know, they're following some state law that they think there is correct, whereas they could be in a city that has different laws. Right. And ultimately, it's the city that uh, determines what what makes sense. Like if we're looking at the federal versus state versus the city, you have to go to the city or is it you got to look at it all? How does that work in that analysis? So good question. So I think the first thing is you have to ask yourself jurisdiction. Right. Uh -huh. Jurisdiction is where is the property located, right? Yeah. What's the property at issue? Jurisdiction would be the city, okay. right? And the state, okay. and city and state. But the city typically can enact laws that are that are stronger than the state, right? Okay, so they are stronger. So they kind mm -hmm. of- The cities tend to be stronger. So I guess if, if I'm not mistaken, basically the way you essentially um, go about it is you got the- different jurisdictions that fall within each other. But if one is stronger than the other, you got to go with the stronger one. Absolutely. Okay. Stronger protections always apply. Okay. So yeah, I always hear this from you. You're like a broken record. Apologies, it's It's like, first thing, I, I I always have these management questions and, you know, landlord tenant questions and all the first thing, what's the jurisdiction now? So you always go back to it. Absolutely. So it's all, it's very important, especially where we're at to just focus on the, the right jurisdiction, understand what we're dealing with first. Because I, you know, you tell me all the time, there's certain cases where the client comes and brings out all this stuff and ultimately is it irrelevant because it's not in the right jurisdiction they're talking about. Yeah. So maybe we could take a step back and understand like, because that a lot of people, a lot of people kind of confuse, including myself, you know, what is the difference between Los Angeles County and then the city of LA? Yeah. So can you explain that a little bit for us? Yeah, absolutely. So the state's divided into... Let's forget about the cities for a second. Okay. You got the state of California. Okay. They have many counties within the state of California. Okay. Large counties. Okay. All right. You got LA County. Uh -huh. We have Orange County. Right. We have uh, Ventura County. Uh -huh. That's what's really near us. We can even go to down as far as San Diego. Okay. Right. And then we got, uh, if you go a little bit far up north, you have Curry County. Uh -huh. And then there's counties up north, you know, I, uh, where, where San Francisco is. I don't have the names on top of my head, but typically- uh, those are the counties. Within the counties, there's individual cities. Got it. Right. And do the counties have their own set of laws as well that you got to be wary about? Or is it is it really state and city? It's it's really state and city, but there's areas of the county that are unincorporated, meaning they don't have a city, right? They don't have a city, uh, a mayor. They don't have a city council. You know, they don't have their own police department. Mm -hmm. Yes, you know, the LA County Sheriff's Department. Mm -hmm. 
So for example, when you're driving on the streets of city of LA, right? It's LAPD, right? Right. Okay. But if you're in a, a different part of LA County, that's not a city, you might have the sheriff's over there because there's no, they don't have a municipality, right? Right. They don't have their own government structures for that municipality. municipality. Got it. So is it safe to, for me, if I think there's a mayor, then it's a city. Yeah, there's a separate mayor. That's exactly there's right. a city. That's yeah. a way to look that's, at it. That's a good way. Mayor of LA, city of LA. Yep. Okay. And um, but not necessarily mayor of LA governs LA County because okay. then within LA counties, Beverly Hills, there's a mayor of Beverly Hills. Absolutely, that governs us. Okay. So now I'm with you. Um, I'm gonna just say it right quick, um, and it's just something that I always think about, and you know, as I continue to dive further into my entrepreneurial you know, active business life and start thinking about my investment strategy and how I want to kind of allocate my net worth into more passive investments. Um, being in landlord, especially in California, call it the city, call it the county. I don't know if I fucking want to be a landlord in the state of California. And, and it's really because of, I think these landlord tenant laws are super favored to tenants. You know, I, I'm, of, um, I'm of the position that, you know, there should be a fair playing ground. But everything I'm seeing, whether it's with my clients or whether it's the, you know, small portfolio that I have, you know, the tenants really have a lot of rights here. You know, if I'm, you know, I'm curious what your perspective is. As I, I mean, obviously this is your main bread and butter. You're, you're, you're a landlord tenant attorney. I mean, would you, would you invest in California? Well, how do you, how would you respond? And how would you like? It's a good question. I think you got to separate. There's two buckets, right? Uh-huh. If we're talking about real estate in general in California. There's plenty of places to buy real estate successfully, and I think where it's worth it to buy in California. Okay. We have to separate commercial and residential. Okay, so you're you're saying the asset class is really important, absolutely, because the laws governing landlord tenants are you know night and day with commercial versus residential. Absolutely. And, okay. And, Can you touch on that a little? Yes. Yeah, so, give me an example. So, Assuming commercial is a little bit more lenient to. Tenant or landlords. Yes. Okay. So, so in a, let's talk about a commercial property. In a commercial property, you give the the tenant here's here's the building. Oh, the toilet's broken. That's not my problem. That's on you. Right. I gave you the building. Right. Oh, my AC's broken. I'm not even responsible for the AC. I'm the landlord. You're you're the tenant's responsible for the air conditioning. Right. All these habitability issues. Mm-hmm. That's the key. Habitability, right? Mm-hmm. Because the cities and the state want to protect. There's a there's a public policy argument. To say, hey, we got to protect people that are living in a dwelling, that are sleeping there at night, that are raising their families. Right. Right. As opposed to the commercial tenant who's, he's just a business owner, right? Right. He's doing a woodwork shop or metalwork or a auto body shop, whatever it is, right? They have their own business. So those, those tenants, like those buildings are amazing and you can continue to raise rent. You can continue to do what you want with them. We can give them notices to move out. And they really don't have many protections besides the four corners of the lease agreement that they have. Outside of that lease agreement, there's no really commercial protections in the state of California or the city. Oh, wow. Now, if we're talking about residential, like forget about your lease agreement. I mean, in the city of Los Angeles, they don't care about your lease agreement. Right. They decide what rules are in play. Right. Oh, you're not raising rents anymore. But my lease says I can raise rents. Too bad. Can't raise rent. Got it. What about evictions? How are we doing right now with residential? So, so I know everyone. So since March 31, 2023, there was obviously, you know, everyone talked about the COVID moratorium. Tenants didn't have to pay rent. I mean, there's landlords that were crying to me. Yeah. $60,000. Yeah. I did rent. Right. They can't collect. Right. Right. Well, what does that do for a guy that owns a, a, a condominium? Right. Or a house? It was a million dollars? 1.1? Yeah. It's, you know, the people have the mindset that landlords are, you know, these ultra rich, uh, you know, people that can, you know, can be completely fine without that passive income. But, you know, a lot of times these are people that spent their lives trying to build this net worth and to be able to live their retirement through these funds. And now you're basically putting them in a position where they can't even live off of that. I mean, to your point, you build your 401k, you invest your whole life, you work, right? To And everyone tells you, oh, buy real estate buy real estate. That's the talking point all the time. Right. So you're like, okay, I'm safe. I'll go buy real estate. Uh, city of LA, duplex, built before 1978. Right. Now during the moratorium of COVID, those people didn't have to pay rent. Right. It doesn't seem so safe. Right. Does it? No, it doesn't seem safe at all. I will say though, I mean, there were some, um, 
um, some payments made to landlords during that time, right? For the residential landlords that were that allowed them to kind of make up for some of the moratorium issues. Yes. So there was a, a bucket of funds, right? Or slush money, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Then for better or for worse, a lot of folks kind of took advantage of it as well. Absolutely. Uh, once a tenant knows it's available, even if they have money to pay rent, they're right. going to. Right. They're going to get their new iPhone. Right. They're going to go buy a new car. Right. But for the most part, I think it was like about 80% of their rent was... Uh, for a certain period from like, uh, let's just say 21 to 22, but what about after 22? Right. Right. We, we, the moratorium ended March of 2023. Well, that's crazy. So there's like another year's worth of rent that, you know, essentially the landlords potentially asked out of. How does that work right now? I mean, to the landlord audience that has missed out on a rent, are, are you saying, hey man, your SOL move on or is there opportunity to kind of recover from the I think it depends, but for the most part, you're SOL. You should have luck because most of these tenants, they have bad credit. Like the, what, If you look at the credit percentage of Americans today, I mean, I think 55% have like a credit score of, I don't know, 600 or below. I don't know the exact numbers, but there's a lot of Americans that have really bad credit. Right. So you have to assume that a lot of these tenants are going to have subpar credit. Right. They already have judgments against them. They already owe their, their car company money or their other financing that they've done. They probably own healthcare bills and a whole bunch of other stuff that you have to think, I have a saying, it's don't throw good money at bad money. And listen, I'm, I'm an attorney. I would love to bill my clients all day. Right. I'll bill them 10, 10,000, 5,000, whatever it is, you know, no problem. Right. But I also give them the best advice because I'm an advocate and I need to give them the best possible advice. Right. It's like, hey, we can go after this tenant for the $30,000 rent that he owed. Fine. Okay. But what are you going to have? A piece of paper? Judgment? Cool. What are you going to do with that paper? Right. They're judgment proof. They don't have any assets. They have no assets. So is it worth spending money on me, five, ten thousand $10,000 to go chase 30 that you might never see? Right. That's the question that a lot of landlords have to ask. Okay. So to answer your question, if the tenant has assets and they were they owed rents for that period, even though there was a moratorium, there's an opportunity to build out a judgment against them. Yes. But more likely than not, the tenant is probably not going to be able to satisfy the judgment anyway, and so you're you're at a lost cause. Absolutely, got it. Yeah, it's it's pretty messed up because I could imagine I could only imagine how many landlords struggled in that period, whether you know they were forced to sell or do something else, and they're just operating at thin margins or not even any margins. And to your point, City of LA puts all these uh, laws in place, right, to prevent the evil landlord from taking advantage of the tenant. But you just said earlier that most of these landlords are, you know, retirees, mom and pop landlords. They're not big corporations. Right. Right. But what happens when the mom and pop landlord now isn't getting paid rent? They're foreclosing on their place and that goes up to an R, uh, a bank sale or foreclosure sale. Who scoops it and gobbles it up? Probably big corp. Exactly. Because they have all the cash. Yeah. So, so at the end of the day, the laws that these fiefdoms are putting in place are actually hurting their cops. Yeah. Right? Because they're getting rid of the mom and pop landlords right. in this business. Right. With the intention of, oh, I'm just trying to help my my tenants in the area, um, which in reality, they're just taking advantage of it. Not It's not really helping anybody in the system. Yeah. Yeah. Pre- pretty crazy. But I'm going to challenge that thought process, right? Um, I mean, I, I struggle with making decisions on investing in LA. Um, as I'm sure a lot of real estate investors are, you know, moving out of state, finding different opportunities, not in these fiefdoms. Um, but there's also the the idea of this beautiful city that we're in. Um, at the end of the day, we're in the city of Los Angeles. And, you know, I don't know if there's another place in the world that has that such demand in Los Angeles. And I think it's a bit balancing act that we all, we all have to analyze and make decisions on. Yeah, we deal with a lot of tough regulation. But at the same time, I mean, I'd, I'd be interested in looking at some of the data that's coming right now with the increase in interest rates, right? And, and what's happened since inflation and um, and where we're at with property values in places within the fiefdoms and then in places out. Are we seeing significant higher declines in the outskirts of non-California states? Or are we seeing significant declines here? Are they similar? You know, what what is that? What does that look like? Is it's a good that- question. I would say ultimately you're right. Location, 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 right? That's the yeah, that's the the mantra in real estate. Right. And where can you go to the lakes or to hiking or to the ocean, right? The beach, right? Or to the mountain, like where the snow's at. Right. What other state has that? Right. We offer so much. Right. 
But there's a way to protect yourself as a real estate investor while still investing in location. How is that? You buy commercial, like I mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. right? The other thing is you stay away from the fiefdoms, right? You stay away from the, you know, call it what it is, but it's the liberal cities. Right. right. You go to Orange County. So within the state of California, you can find more lenient counties that or, or cities that, that offer. And are still Los Angeles adjacent in a sense, right? Right. Her county's right next door to us. Right. Malibu. Cal City of Calabasas, Malibu. Yeah. But how is Calabasas? I feel like Calabasas is a little, it's, is, it, is it more lenient to landlords? I, it is. Yeah. I mean, they have their other rules. I mean, you're not allowed to smoke in public. <laughs> Calabasas, they got a, <laughs> some other rules, but. But yes, it is more lenient than than Los Angeles. Got it. So, so what is the current environment as it relates to eviction? So, as of March, you said twenty twenty three. Yeah, a few months. Evictions are alive. Yeah. So, what happened to your business during COVID? Were you just sitting pretty, or what were you doing? So, yeah, I started in twenty nineteen. My first eviction. Oh my god. Okay. Right before COVID. Right. All right. And I still did some evictions, but they were for. They weren't, they, you couldn't evict for non-payment rent. Right. Right. That was out. But I think I said, I'm, I'm a creative guy. I found other ways to illegal right. activity, nuisance, uh -huh. right? Your trash is being built up. You remove the trash. They didn't remove the trash. So anywhere from nuisance to like health hazards or to illegal activity. I had one guy that one tenant that was running a, a Airbnb with no license. Uh, landlords getting fines from the city of LA saying that he's running an, an Airbnb. Landlords like not running an Airbnb. Wow. Oh, well, your tenant is. Wow. So so you were able to get compliance from the sheriff's department to be able to evict that tenant because yeah. of the illegal activity? Yeah. There's no ways to evict during COVID. Right. But it was slow. Yeah. Non-payment of rent is the primary method of evicting. Sure. Like most of the cases. Right. And those were out. Uh, but then March 31, COVID ends, business explodes. You know, I do zero advertising and I'm getting multiple phone calls a day. I mean, you saw yourself. I know. Right? I saw it. Nonstop. Yeah. So I'm glad your phone's offered. Yeah. <laughs> for this podcast. Yeah. But yeah, so, man, I hear you. So I think we're at a point where where a lot of the landlord tenant attorneys who's been around for 20, 25 years, they're not in the business anymore. Right. See, I was fortunate. I have the manufacturing plant. I've got my Airbnb supplemental income. Yeah. My wife's also an attorney, so she's doing very well in her career. Right. So I didn't have to expand this landlord tenant business right. as much as I wanted. It wasn't my like lifeline. Right. So you got all these landlord tenant trees that it was their bread and butter. It was their life. And they're like, I gotta find a different industry. Sure. Because I can't do evictions right now. Right. And now it's left a a hole, so to speak, a cave, right? Like a big, big, massive hole. Right. Of not enough landlord tenant attorney. And hence why I'm getting phone calls all the time. And all of us are all the landlord tenant busy. Right. I'm no one special. I'm just another landlord tenant trade, but there's not a lot of us. Right. Yeah. It's a little bit serendipitous of how you're able to navigate, but also the fact that you're diversifying your ventures, very, very good for you. So you could focus focus on, because I think in that period, if I'm not mistaken, you expanded your Airbnb portfolio. This is something we could talk about for, we're going to talk, we're going to get into a little bit too. That That's pretty awesome. So uh, Itai, talk to me about kind of, so we talked about unlawful detainer, I want to understand in terms of um, you know legal action that you take in these in this space. Like if we take eviction issues versus habitability issues and stuff like that, how does it work? Um, my understanding is eviction process is a little bit quicker. Why is that? Or versus a habitability issue can go off for you know years in terms of finding a solution between a landlord and said how does that work? And can you explain to us like a little bit? Uh, at why it's anything. So, I mean, I think you got to go back to the original founders of this country, right? We got to look to the constitution. What right. a country has, a constitution that's written on paper that's lasted this many years. Well, it's like since 1776, we're talking 250 years. So you're, you're alluding to the fifth amendment? I am. Okay. Yeah. And the fifth amendment states that uh, you can't deprive someone of life, liberty, and property. Life, so, liberty, property. So they're equi essentially equivocating property with life and liberty it, it's it's all inclusive I and mean, right. i mentioned uh, life and liberty also has to do with criminal trials sure right sure. so like you have a right to a speedy trial they say criminal right a lot of this criminal defendants like to extend and delay stuff right but they don't have to right right they could say hey i want a trial within x amount of days as i'm required under statute 
Right. So, uh, you know, life, liberty, property, uh, property is a possessory right. A landlord owns that piece of property, mm. right? It's their possession. Right. And our founding fathers, I mean, we, we ran away from England because the king was trying to tax our property and keep title of our property. We didn't own, you know, if you were a serf yeah. in, in England, right? You were a lord or something, you couldn't own property. Right. Right. But we in this country, we all can own property. We're all equal citizens. Everyone has an equal opportunity for everything in this country. So, so therefore you're saying, so kind of going back into the uh, unlawful detainer space, it gives you a particular ability to ha- settle and handle cases more efficiently than other types of civil civil matters? Absolutely. Because civil matters, like a general civil matter for habitability or, yeah. oh, this guy, I bought a business for him. I'm suing him now for this business. Yeah. I mean, those are on the back burner. Those are on the end of the court dockets. Yeah. If you ever witnessed or know about civil trials, they could take two, three years yeah. times before going from beginning to end. Yeah. Here, we have a a speedy process in unlawful detainers, in evictions, because we have to get the landlord his possession back of his property. Mm-hmm. And hence the term unlawful detainer, after the notices expire, the tenant has now detained that property unlawfully. Right. And it's the court has to come in because you can't just go and change the locks on a tenant. Right. That's illegal. Right. It's called self-help. Right. Right. Old school people, you know, like people back in the day would come in there with bats and stuff and be like, yo, yo, get out of here. Get out of here. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't, doesn't exactly work like that anymore. No, no, it doesn't. Not especially with social media. <laughs> the guy holding the bat's going to be on uh, Instagram. Or yeah. So, so. But having said that, in terms of the evictions process, if it's determined that there is a potential unlawful detainer issue, uh, there is a more speedy process than getting stuck in other civil matters. Of course. And so kind of going back to, you know, we talk about this all the time. I remember when, you know, the podcast with my buddy, Sean, and we've met before, uh, we talked about really being good at your, you know, your craft and really focusing on that craft. And so you being you know, an expert in this in this unlawful detainer space, it's very important to whether someone like yourself or another evictions attorney to be able to properly navigate that. If not, if they're operating in, you know, somewhat of a if someone's somewhat of a generalist and doesn't know the space as well, they could, you know, assume that they're dealing with some little civil matter that's gonna take years, you know, to to settle. Whereas in this space, you know, if you're speaking to someone that knows the space like the back of their hand, they can navigate it and to be able to, you know, quickly and efficiently get shit done. Yeah. And more importantly, if some generalist does it, they might fail. There's so many landmines, as we saw with the fiefdoms. Yeah. With all these notices that it's required. You gotta upload the notice to the city. You gotta you gotta serve them properly. All these different things that a general attorney may not be able to navigate through unless he does his due diligence and research, right? Right. Uh, and more importantly, uh, they have even within the real estate space, I have a friend who's a real estate attorney. I'm a real estate attorney. They don't do UDs, unlawful detainer. They don't know anything about them. They do like commercial real estate transactions, right? Some big corporations buying a commercial building, they put LA Fitness in there, for example. Right. Right. Triple that lease. Right. Right. They don't know anything about them. And I don't know anything about, I don't know as much in their craft, right? Because I don't deal with those things. So even if someone's labeled a real estate attorney, Right, unless you actually do UDs and you're in the thick of it, and we see a trial sometimes within three weeks. You know, I file three weeks later. I'm in, I'm in court. You can't say that for any other uh, civil matter, except maybe a restraining order. Those are pretty quick too. Right. Yeah, that's that's pretty crazy. Something I didn't know uh, that how how quickly you can address certain unlawful detainer matters. Now, with the caveat during COVID, there was obviously a slowdown in all this stuff. I mean, the courts were logged on everything. Right. Right. Criminal trials were delayed. Everything was delayed during COVID. So how are we doing right now? I mean, is this oh, about up? It's it's done. Yeah, everything's probably it's even more efficient because now everything's on remote, and you know they they have powered the operations to kind of the courts to be able to do certain things. Whereas prior to COVID, they weren't doing any. Not hundred percent. I'm on remote all the time. I was about to have a remote hearing today, but fortunately, the judge ruled in my favor in chambers. I didn't have to appear. Wow. No. That- that's great. I guess uh, light at the end of the tunnel for a little bit, for, for you know. So if, if if folks were able to kind of survive, it seems, um, you know, the environment is getting a little bit better. Um, you know, you you told me about a story about because um, again, I mean, I, I again struggling with the landlord issue in the city of LA or in California in general. 
um, regardless of these fiefdom. Uh, I, I, I struggle, I struggle. And so you, you, you always tell me all these stories. And, and uh, one thing that was a very foreign concept to me was, hey, if I'm a landlord and I'm trying to get my tenant out um, in the city of LA, there's definitely certain hoops that you got to get, like if the, even if the lease is up. Like let's say today, my lease, a, a lease on one of my tenant with one of my tenants is up. Can I go and tell them, hey, I'm trying to move in into the property, or what's what's the rule behind that? So no, I mean if your lease expires, that's not a reason to evict a tenant. Right? Mm-hmm. You have two op- you have a few options. Okay. To get rid of the tenant, you have to do an owner occupy move in. Okay. Right, where you as the owner or a family member moves into the property. What's a family member? Uh, you know, like a son, daughter, grandchild, parent, parent. Okay. It's pretty like, it's not, it's not a cousin. Okay. So it goes up and down, but not left and right. That's, that's right. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, there's other ways, like there's if there's a government order, let's just say that the place is, building and safety comes in, like, wow, this electrical is going to start fires. The the plumbing's messed up. Now, this, now you get a government order from building and safety, right? They say, hey, you have to comply with it. If you have a government order, you can also evict the tenant. Mm-hmm. So you got owner occupying, you got government order, mm-hmm. right? In either scenario, you have to pay the tenant relocation. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you have to pay the tenant re- relocation money even if the lease is expired. Correct. Is there a time that you don't? So if we're talking about like Orange County or San Diego. I knew you were going to say that. At the end of what's the jurisdiction? Yeah, what's the jurisdiction? Okay, so in the city of LA. In the city of LA, yeah. there's no escaping relocation money. Okay, and what does that money look like? Anywhere from twelve dollars to $25,000. And how do you determine that? It's determined by whether the tenant is how long they've lived there. Uh-huh. So three years or more, whether they have minor children living there, and if they're senior citizen, or if they have a disability. Mm-hmm. And if you want to talk about something else, speaking of senior citizens and disabilities, mm-hmm. there's something in a city of LA specifically uh, under the rent stabilization ordinance. So it's the city of LA regulates these certain properties, not all properties, mm-hmm. uh, but in these certain properties, if they were built before 1978, if there's two or more uh, dwellings on one parcel, mm-hmm. there's a thing called forever tenant. Okay. I mean, what's that? You can never get rid of that tenant, ever for any reason. You're kidding. Except maybe the government order that I mentioned to you. Right. Outside of the government order, which is rare, right? They're forever tenant. So if I went into a property built before 1978 as a tenant and I had a disability, call it ADHD, and I didn't want to move. There is absolutely no way that my landlord could get me out of it. So it's interesting you mentioned ADHD. I got a story for you. Tell me. I have a client who wanted to do an owner-occupied move-in. It's an RSO unit, which means it was built before 1978. There's, I think it's a triplex. There's three units. So qualifies for the forever tenant is what you're saying. Not yet, but in a second, it will be. So this is just qualifies as rent control. So you have to follow certain requirements. You got to pay relocation money. Okay. But there is a specific tenant in one of the units yeah. That's lived there for over ten years, okay. and they have a disability. So if if so, we we send them the owner occupy move in paperwork. Here's your, I think it was twenty thousand dollars, twenty two thousand dollars. Here you go. You have sixty days to move out. She responds back with, "Hey, I've lived here for ten years, and I'm getting a doctor's note for a disability." So she didn't have this disability documented until after we served this notice, right? The doctor's note which we're not even allowed to ask what disability it is. Fortunately, she had an attorney and the attorney told me, and the attorney didn't have to, but I was lucky to, lucky to find out that she was suffering from ADHD and therefore falls under the disability requirement of the city. And now he can't get rid of her. Wait, so I need to understand this. So if a land, as long as, as long as the landlord gets, does he have to get evidence of the disability? So here, uh, how does that work? So a good he question. doesn't have to disclose a disability, but he has to just say I have a disability? I mean, technically, the city is allowed to review the disability, and the city determined it was. Right? But what, what's happening in practice? Yeah. So in practice, listen, you could fight the city. You could still file the eviction technically, right? Or you can say, hey, I'm going to file the eviction. Let's go through it. But I think that's a throwing good money at bad money, right? We live in a city, in a state that is tenant-friendly. The city denied the application. The city determined they had a disability. So you're going to go to court now in front of a judge or a jury and say this 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 lady was not a senior citizen, but she was 60. She's lived there for 12 years. Good luck getting a jury to uh, 
say that she's guilty of an unlawful detainer and doesn't have a disability. Wow. That's crazy. Look, I mean, to a certain extent, and, you know, I understand the concept of the forever tenant, especially as, you know, we're trying to be considerate of, um, you know, the pop our older population that, you know, obviously they may not have the reasonable funds to deal with certain rent matters, but, you know, there has to be some side of some sort of regulation where, you know, this is fair on both sides because I, I can't imagine how I would feel as a landlord if I had this, this tenant who literally just wanted to screw me over, wouldn't get out of my property because he said, oh, I have freaking ADHD. I'm not getting out of here. You can't raise my rent. You can't do anything. It's 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 crazy. And I mean, I don't know what the solution is, but it, it just can't be one-sided like this is. And this is these are the things that scare the crap out of me. I don't know. I mean, it's... It is very lopsided right now. I agree. There do there does need to be some protections, but California already has them. right. Right in twenty nineteen, they passed the Tenant Protection Act in California, AB fourteen eighty two. What does that say? It says that uh, a tenant is required one month's relocation, one month's rent. Right. So apparently, LA doesn't think that's enough. No, and and it doesn't have anything about forever tenants. I think that you know we talked about life, liberty, property. Let's go back to the Fifth Amendment. Right. Is having a forever tenant almost on the verge of violating your fifth amendment right of property. Yeah. That's a big argument right there. So that's pretty, yeah. I mean, I, I definitely questioned that. Ah, Italian, I don't know, man. I, I don't know. I think, um, I, I don't mean to be shitting on California or the city of LA, but a lot of these things seem very challenging to navigate over. But I mean, I, I feel blessed to have you by my side because I'm hitting you up constantly asking you questions on things and having a creative uh, unlawful detainer attorney is, is super beneficial. So appreciate you, man. Um, I wanted to shift gears a little bit. Um, Let's do it. Because at the end of the day, uh, because of all the issues when it comes to inflation, when it comes to um, challenges with financing and real estate investing and all, all this good stuff, we're always looking for ways to juice up margins. And one thing that you've uh, you know, been super successful in is uh, with the short-term rental space. Yeah, you know, I wanted to talk to, talk to you a little bit about that. First off, uh, when did you start getting into the short-term rentals, and what made you get into it? So I got into short-term rentals in very recently, at 2021. Okay, um, and interestingly enough, I had a property that I purchased with the intent to put a long-term tenant. Okay, right. So I'm the. In 2021, as you know, real estate prices were high, uh -huh. right? Uh, I want to say the mortgage was, with property taxes, was roughly 5,500, okay, 400, okay, like that. And so I tried to rent the place out for 5,500, okay, no bites, no bites, nothing, okay. Drop it to 5,200, no bites. Drop it to 5,000, no bites. Okay, I go down to 4,500, no bites. Okay, it's a good location, right? And you know, my, my, one of my real estate friends is like, oh, why don't you just turn it into an Airbnb? I'm like, uh, I don't know. I, I gotta, I gotta buy furniture in the belly fat carpets. Yeah. I have to put at least laminate floors. I gotta make it look nice. Yeah. It doesn't seem like a passive investment at all. Not at all. Okay. But on the other hand, I can't rent my place for 4,000 a month. Yeah. And even if I did rent my place for 4,000 a month, I'd be losing 1,500 a month. Right. So it's not only is it not a passive investment, it's a passive loss. Yeah. Right. So I convinced my wife, which is, uh, I think nowadays she's like, I go, she goes with Itai's gut. She's like, before I was like questioning, oh, I don't know. Now it's like, okay, Itai has a good pulse okay. on the market. Okay. It's like, let me just try this Airbnb. We're not renting the place out. Like, what do we have to lose? Okay. We're going to, we're going to lose, we're going to buy some used furniture or some new mattresses. Like worst case we sell it. Okay. Right. It's not a complete loss. So that's how I started my first Airbnb. We decided to turn this long-term rental into a short-term rental. And from the beginning, it was gangbuster, 90% occupancy, very good ADR, average daily revenue for the marketplace. Um, and it's been it's been going ever since. And since then, I've added to the portfolio. I have two more now, so total of three. Uh, I have one that I'm starting in Palm Springs next month. I got another one that, that I'm going to start in Big Bear. Okay. And then I have... Uh, one that I just pur purchased in Mammoth. So my goal is to get about an extra two or three a year from here. That's great. That's great. And so, you know, we've touched on this a little bit and I, I love hearing that. 
um, because, you know, it is active, right? I don't think it's as strenuous as people think it is, especially if you have the right resources, right? We talk about it all the time because I, I have an Airbnb a property. You, you give me a lot of good advice on it too. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's not as passive as a passive, you know, long-term tenant. But at the same time, it's very scalable. And obviously the juice is worth the squeeze, right? So that $5,000 that you couldn't get, what well, can I ask you how much you're getting on one month on average? About ten thousand. You're doing ten thousand. Yeah. So whereas actually you said you probably couldn't even get four thousand. Yes. You're getting about ten k a month gross. Yeah. Okay. Obviously, let's be real. There's some costs associated with it that otherwise, right? You're paying for the utilities. Yeah. You're paying for, um, you're paying for cleaning. Yeah. Frequently. Yeah. So I mean, net net, you're probably looking at probably almost double. Your earnings yes. that you probably get, maybe about a little eight, bit about less. Eight, about 8000 instead of the four that I was getting. So exactly done. Okay. So that right there excites the crap out of me. And let's talk about how you're able to achieve that. Because, you know, I being new to it, we share metrics. We share metrics a lot. You give me a lot of advice on it. Um, it's a whole business, yeah. right? And you got to be on top of it. But at the same time, with the right resources and the right way to go about it, it's I think it's actually a very scalable investment model. And to discuss scalability, and we can even, if you really want to get into the nitty gritty. Yeah, let's do it. We can talk about, is it a purchase? Is it an arbitrage model? Or is it a management, right? Because there's three different models. Okay, yeah, let, let's talk about that a little. Purchase seems to make sense. I think I'm going to top you off. With okay. <laughs> uh, pur- purchase seems to make sense, right? You buy, you buy the property and... You position it. Obviously, if it's short term, you got to get the right permitting. I'm, I'm going to say exactly what you always say. What's the jurisdiction? Then you, with the right jurisdiction, you go into it. You get the per, you get the permitting, and you're just pretty much Airbnbing your own property. Yeah. Right. You're not dealing with any other middleman. Okay. You, the next one is arbitrage. Talk to me about it. So arbitrage is where you approach a landlord and say, "Hey, here's my Airbnb portfolio." Here's the money in my bank. Like, so he sees you're a serious businessman. You're not just a typical tenant, right? Mm -hmm. But you are going to be his tenant. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm going to lease this property from you. Mm -hmm. I'll even do a two year lease, three year, whatever you want, Mm -hmm. right? You negotiate the terms, Mm -hmm. figure out an amount for rent, Mm -hmm. give him upfront if he wants, whatever makes the landlord comfortable. Because the goal of the arbitrage model is to make the landlord comfortable. Mm -hmm. And you pay pay him rent and then he allows you, right? So he's basically letting you sublease them. Okay. Essentially, he's allowing you to do an Airbnb. Okay. It's how do you achieve that? I mean, I'm a landlord and this guy's like, I want to Airbnb your property. Like, how do you, I don't see myself ever saying yes, unless they give me really good, a really good premium on my rent. So, so you can give him a little bit of a premium on the rent, but let's, let's discuss something. Contrary to popular belief, do you think that, that an Airbnb property gets abused more or less than a long-term tenancy? Because a lot of the news and everybody, they tell you, oh, the Airbnbs, they're destroying, they're going to spike up your place. Yeah, it's like, going to become a party house and all that. These stuff. guys, these guests rarely use my kitchen. They're going to Grubhub. Yeah. They're going, get, get going out to eat. Right. So who's using the kitchen more? Right. The long-term tenant or the short-term tenant? So, right, you start to question the narrative. Right. right. What these, what you're hearing on the media and everybody else. Right. So you, going back to what you tell Lynn, you're like, listen, like I'm going to, I'm responsible for the property. I have a 800 and whatever FICO score. Right. Look at the money in my bank. I'll guarantee this thing. Right. I'll give you two years, three years, whatever you want. Right. No, no tenant in town's going to give you that. Right. That guarantee. And when a toilet breaks, right. When there's a, a air conditioning broken or something's wrong. Yeah. What does a typical landlord have to do with a long-term tenant? Okay, so calls landlord, says, hey, come fix my stuff. I'm going to stop paying you rent if you don't come fix my stuff. Wow. Is he going to have to deal with that with me? Wow. Of course not. I'm, I'm not even going to call the landlord, the, the guy that I'm arbitraging from. Right. And I'd be like, I got the toilet. I got it. He's not going to hear from me for any habitability issues. He's just not- getting his payment, not even thinking about it. Yeah. So you want to talk about convincing a landlord, talk about passive, true passive income right. for the landlord. For the landlord. It would be arbitrage, not a long-term tenant for them. Right. Absolutely. He doesn't have to do a damn thing. Yes. Very fair point. Okay. So that's arbitrage. There's another way to achieve it. Um, and it's just management. Yeah. Right. So a lot of these guys, they come in, they're like, I'm going to host the place myself. Okay. But a lot of these hosts, I don't need to tell you, you, you know, the marketplace. Right. Most people don't know what they're doing. Right. 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 So they come in there, they try to do it, or they had a, 
crappy management company. You know, they got like four star reviews. It's Vacasa or one of these other ones. Yeah. And they got they got really bad reviews, right? Right. So, and that's critical because the reviews everything. You know, it's it, it triggers the demand of your property. Absolutely. Okay. So these landlords that are trying to do it themselves, or they have a bad management company, they fire the management company. Luckily, I have enough connections that people, you know, I talk to everybody. Everybody knows what I'm doing. That I had two different people approach me like, hey, can you manage my property? Right. So there's a lot of ways to go that route. And then you just take a percentage of their revenue, right? You're like, okay, here, instead of me arbitraging it from you, I'm going to take X amount of gross revenue and then you get the rest of the money. Okay. And that way they, they have some skin in the game, right? The landlord. Right. Yeah, because then if it's doing really well, you know, yeah, you're taking what average is what, 20%? Yeah, 20, 25. 20, 25%. But at the end of the day, if it keeps going, I mean, look, give give that example of 4K versus 8K, right? If he's taking 20% of 8K, you're taking 20% of 8K, yeah. right? He's so still making coming. more than he would have with he's, a long-term tenant. Yeah, he's making six something, $6,400 a month. Yeah. Hey, it's much better than renting it out for 4K. Yeah. It's still a win-win, and he's not doing jack shit. He's yeah. not managing it for a little bit. You're not doing on all of that. Yeah. Okay, I like that. Now I'm going to tell you my perspective. My perspective to you as my client who is looking to expand his portfolio is: I want to push you to purchase every single one of your Airbnb, and tell that's me. because I mean, first of all, kudos to you, my friend. Um, you may or may not have thought about what you have been able to achieve indirectly. Um, but there are a lot of tax benefits to owning Airbnbs, right? First off, as you mentioned, you're doing Airbnbs. You're not doing a 30-day or more. You're kind of doing short, true short-term Airbnb. I think in Airbnb, they define it as short-term and midterm. Midterm being 30 days or above, um, short-term being you know one day or, or greater, right? Um, and so when you're able to achieve an average day listing of seven days uh, or below, then the IRS, it's called the short-term loophole that us accountants like to say, is the IRS allows you to treat that automatically as non-passive activity, meaning active. So knowing you, you have some active businesses, right? You got your law firm, you got Jackie's Best that you're still working on, you're getting K-1s from both of them, assuming you're not getting losses. Thankfully, Jackie's Best is killing it, your law firm's killing it, you have a lot of taxable income out of that. But when you purchase your property and Airbnb it, and you're able to treat it as non-passive, right, as active business, because it's less than seven days or seven days or less, then you're able to take that property, depreciate the crap out of it that first year you buy it, give yourself a paper loss, and offset your active income from your businesses. What does that do, right? Essentially, if you had taxable income of about a million dollars from your other business, and you bought a property where you're able to bonus depreciate, let's say half, half a million dollars, rather than paying a taxes on a million dollars, you're paying taxes on half a million dollars. And lo and behold, you just bought yourself another property. Wow. Rinse and repeat, wow. like which is what you're planning to do. You're able to essentially, you know, not pay Uncle Sam and just massively increase your real estate por- portfolio. It's something that's really incredible. And, and, uh, so, I mean, in the, in the three, I would definitely point to trying to buy the property. Now, having said that, there's a lot of other consideration. I'm not going to tell anybody, hey, go buy property, go buy property, not thinking about the pro- you know the deal that you're going to get, especially with the cost of financing. Even with the increased margins of Airbnb, you might not be in the best place. Absolutely. Um, but in the long run, if you're thinking about, okay, well, if even if I'm just breaking even, let's say, from the, from the Airbnb uh, you know, venture, at the minimum, I'm taking away that instead of paying tax on a million dollars, I'm paying tax on 500K. You just save half of your money. Yeah. So, you know, there's great consideration, very exciting what you're what you're doing there. Um, but overall, if you're able to buy the property versus arbitrage or management, I'd say slam dunk, buy that property in Airbnb, Airbnb it if you can. But the beauty of the management model is you didn't have to buy any furniture. There's zero uh, capital expenditure. Of course, right? So you have to, it's a cost benefit. With the property, you're at least putting on a typical financing 20% down. Sure. That's it's a lot of money nowadays. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money, but a lot of potential benefit if you're able to do it. If you can afford it, of course. At the end of the day, we're coming down to 
you know, we said it in the beginning, right? Who's winning at the end of the day? The guy who has the cash. Cash is king. Because, yeah, the property values have gone down. Cost of financing has gone super up as a result, taking away, like, the mom-and-pop investors. Yeah. But the people that have all the cash in the world, the big corp corporate guys or, you know, the big family offices out there are taking away deals, all cash, no-brainer. What do you think they're going to do in Maui now with all those fires? These corporations, right? Oh, like, <laughs> They're salivating at the mouth, right? Yeah. No, for sure. With cash. Yeah. Speaking yeah. of cash, the mammoth property I purchased, okay. all cash. All cash. Okay. Well, congrats on that. That's yeah. amazing. Because they, they didn't pencil in with a 7% interest rate. Yeah. You you didn't think you'll make it. You know, it wouldn't even be profitable. It wouldn't be profitable. Yeah. So I'd want to have the money. Did you thought through the depreciation benefit that you're going to get out of it? I did not. So I mean now that's that's even yeah. another kicker that you're gonna yeah. you're gonna we're gonna see. I'm excited to see what next year's tax return looks like. <laughs> right. That's great. <laughs> yeah. You'll be um, working on it. <laughs> yeah, I will. I'm looking forward to that actually. Yeah. Um, but just make sure it's seven days or less. Of course. So listen and always all my listings are I, I give one day stays. And you know why I do one day stays. All right. We talked about this. Okay, let's get into it. I think we need to see it. So um I want to know how you're able to confidently make these investments in Airbnb, and you know what are you what are you looking at when you're looking at a at an at a potential? You looked at Mammoth. Okay. How was it a no brainer for you to say go? Because I'm I think of Mammoth to the layman. I'm like, okay, well, it's a tourist place, right? You know, a lot of people come there to ski, and uh, I can't see someone coming there throughout the entire year. So I'll, automatically, I'm concerned about vacancy. Yeah. Right. That goes into my decision making. Um, then I'm thinking about okay, well, how am I, what am I what do I need to achieve to break even at the minimum, if not make at least a little bit of margin? We got to live over here. So, so what are you doing? What kind of insights are you doing? What, how did you? Can you walk me through your decision making? So the first thing I did was I went on Air DNA. Okay. So What's Air, that? Air DNA is a platform to view uh, listings on Airbnb and VRBO, and they have access to all the data, the average revenue per night, the occupancy, like how many days uh, booked it was, how many days emptied it, everything. Okay. It has all the data. Okay. Personally, I don't even know how they get it, but they get it. And I know it's accurate because when I look up my listings on there, yeah. I'm like, wow, this is literally like my data. To the T. Yeah. Wow. It might be off by like a little bit, but not enough to- There's a fee to pay for it, Airbnb. It's a fee. And they charge per city. So when I got the subscription, I just paid for Mammoth. Mm. I didn't have access to San Diego got it. anywhere else. I'm specifically paying for Mammoth. Okay. And they charge a good amount. I think it's like 50 bucks a month or something. Oh, wow. Just for one city, little city, Mammoth. Oh, yeah, but when you're making that decision, you get it for a month and you cancel it? Or yeah, yeah, I did it for a few months and then I canceled. All right. Well, you got you got the worth. It was a win-win. Okay. Yes. So you look at AirDNA. Yeah. You look at specifically what type of data? Yeah, looking at, I'm looking at, I'm looking at, first I'm looking at all the competition. So I'm looking to invest, the, the specific property I bought is a two bedroom, two bath. Mm -hmm. I'm not gonna be looking at comps of four and five bedrooms. That wouldn't make any sense. Their ADRs, their vacancies are way different than mine. Mm -hmm. So I specifically look for two bedroom, two baths okay. as my competition. Okay. Some three baths, some three bedrooms. Why? Because I'm turning the living room into like a, a foldable couch. So it's more occupants, right? I'm gonna fit two more people. And it's little yeah. occupancy. So it's gonna be six. Six. Yeah. Oh, two I'm bedroom, but three baths, three full baths. Got it. So the upstairs still has a full bath. Couch can convert into a, a queen bed, and now you got another bed. Oh, that's great. Um, and not one of those like cheap like foldable couch bed. Like I go, see, I go when I buy my furniture, it's like I go all out. Yeah, do it any right. like the the foam mattress. Like so they're not so like a year later they're not the the couch is not like caved in. They got like spring pains from the from the springs hitting their back you know right it's these little things right in the airbnb you can't go cheap with the furniture i mean certain things you can do like normal but of course like the bed and the mattress and Very uh, certain like little things i find that like you know the benefit outweighs like the additional premiums okay so so you got that information from air air dna how do you continue? Because like I know you're getting great, great, great results, and maybe we can see them. I can you, yeah. Can you do me a favor? Walk me through it. So look, I think the oh, the goal with Airbnb is this: in order to be at the top of search, you got to look at their what is it? Their algorithm, right? Right. What is it? So how do you get to the top? Right. It's not based on the actual times people book you. It's based on the time that people view your listing. 
Okay. So as long as someone's searching uh-huh. and they view it, then you're going to be, you're going to go higher and higher in rate, mm. right? Okay. So in order to be at the top of the ranking, you just want to maximize views. Views. God, how do you do that? If you do, if you did a, a 30 day minimum stay, how many views do you think you're going to get? How many people are looking for 30 day stays? I mean, much less than the short term. Exactly. Okay. Right. So, so there's a lot of hosts that do like, they don't want to deal with a one day stay. Yeah. So they do like, oh, minimum four days. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But how many views are they getting? I'm doing one day stays. They're doing four day stays. Who's getting more views? I for sure mean more people are going to be looking for a one day stay. Right. It's just natural. Sure. So once you do that, you get at the top of search. So right. First, first tip that you gave, make sure you're allowing for one day stays. Yes. Now I think one thing that you do is like, okay, well you're allowing for one day stays, but that one day stay is going to be a freaking pre- premium. And absolutely. Yeah. So, so here's the goal is what you do is you charge. We'll say that the, let's just say that the average night of this listing is $400, right? On average. Okay. In a given year. So you want to make your, your one day stay $600. Okay. Right? Wow. One day. Okay. Even though you know your average is 400, you're like, I'm going to get 400, Mm -hmm. but you charge 600, not so they can book your listing. Right. It's just so you can get- Just for their ability. Yeah. Yeah. Then I- But if they get $600, they want to pay for one day. You're all right. Thank you. Problem. Yeah. Wow. Then what you do is you look into- uh, uh, pr- uh, rule sets. Uh-huh. So it's these certain, the Airbnb has this certain uh, um, calendar mm-hmm. called the multi-calendar uh-huh. where you could do rule sets and say, okay, if they stay two days, I'm going to give an X discount. If they stay three days, I'm going to give more discount. Mm-hmm. If they stay four days and so on and so on. Mm-hmm. But you don't want them to stay more than seven. So don't give them a discount for more than seven. Well, I, I think it's, it's it's okay if you do more than seven because it's an average right. with the IRS. Right, right. You it's can, an average. You can do a seven day stay here and there. Yeah. More than seven here and there, but make sure, make sure you're sure. watching that average. So, that, so it's interesting because Airbnb gives you that average. Yes. So let's look at that. Length of stay. So if we go here, we look at length of stay. Oh, hold on. So if we look at length of stay and we go to similar listings, mm-hmm. look, look at my average stays throughout the year. Even though I'm still getting one day, uh, some one day stays, I'm getting some two week stays. I'm getting some in betweens, but at the end of the day, it's about what uh, anywhere from a, a four to five day stay. Please screenshot that later and send it to me so I okay. could for your taxes. Okay, I need to verify that, but that's okay. great. So yeah. always monitor these stays, like the stays. Okay, that's, that's okay. Great. Talk to me about those rule sets. How do how do you how do you build those out? Okay, so so if we go to the rule sets, it's not in the app. You actually have to go to the desktop version. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So maybe later I'll show you off camera. Sure, where the multi calendar is there, but the, the app doesn't have that available. Okay. But what that does have available is occupancy rates. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it average nightly stay. Okay. So if we just go here to, let's first look at the views, right? We we're talking about views earlier. Yeah, views are critical. So views are critical. We look in the last 30 days or even look at the last 365 days. I mean, look at my views compared to the competition. 10,483 compared versus 1,500. Yeah. How do you achieve that? One night stay. Okay. Well, that's one of it. It can't that's just one. be that. Okay. What else do you need? All my listings are 4.96 stars and up. You got to be a super host and get five star reviews. Yes. And, and not 4.8, not 4.85. Yeah. Even though you're super host with 4.8 technically. Yeah. But you need to be the best in the business, best of class. How do you do it? So the what's key, worth it, what's not? The key is you need to, a couple things. First, you can't be cheap in this business, right? It's the cost of doing business all the time. And customer. You know, a lot of people, they, they tell me, oh, Airbnb is just real estate. No, it's not real estate. We're in the hospitality business. You need to get real estate out of your head because it's really not real estate if you get to the actual like focus of it. Right. It's hospitality. It's hospitality. Right. Right. And if you can get into that mentality and you treat your guests as who they are, which is, you know, people staying at your hotel or at right. Airbnb. Right. Uh, I mean, you stay at hotels and Airbnbs all the time. You know what to expect. Oh. They give you two towels. Yeah. And you're having to call them and say, hey, I need more towels. I'm here for five days. Why did you only give me two towels? Right. Right. Certain little things that go a long way. So the towel. The coffee's fully stopped. Make sure there's coffee. I do the little, you know, those like uh, shampoo and conditioner with like the soap. Little, little cute little, little, cute little thing. Little setups. My wife's touch. Yeah. yeah. It's nice. You always need a lady's touch on these things. Yeah. You were mentioning uh, the makeup remover. Oh, yeah. She has. So, so our towels were getting like destroyed with, you know, ladies. They, yeah, it's their makeup. And they take their makeup off. Towels black doesn't come out of the wash. Right. 
And do you, by the way, do you charge the guests for the towel? Do you even say anything? No, you don't. No. You see what I'm saying? Right. That's what hospitality is. About. Right. Yeah. Our mentality is just shifts, right? Yes. Whereas you're thinking of a long-term tenant, let them do this. If you shift to the hospitality mentality, I mean, look, at the end of the day, there is cost to getting that better margin. So yeah. for you, it's, it's whether it's worth it. Absolutely. To me, when I'm thinking about margin and uh, as a CPA, I had a benefit in taxes and with this short-term loophole, I mean, that hospitality switch to me is, you know, a no-brainer. So- so, so my wife put makeup uh, remover things. Well, she puts that, for, she offers it for every She day. offers it for all the guests. Yeah, yeah. So, so now our towels are destroyed. That's good. Not only do you give an added little, you know, amenity, now you're also saving your towels. Exactly. Okay. You know, we get stains on the sheets sometimes. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're baby, like, you know. Sure. Yeah. Well, we don't, we, we don't go after the tenant for that, you know, or the guest, I should say. They're not right. tenants, they're guests. We don't go after them. For that. Right. Right. So- Stocking everything, communication. Communication, That's yeah. another huge one. I learned that the hard way. Uh, just really always like checking in on them, making sure everyone's good, uh, all, all that good stuff. I think it goes a long way. And ultimately, you know, it, it becomes worth it. Now, now I'm going to take a step back because, you know, the peop- a lot of people are, and I don't know if this is fake news or not, a lot of people are saying like, hey, like my Airbnbs, like I'm hearing in the news, people's Airbnbs are like down 50% or they're down. And like, have you heard that? Oh yeah, they're down, man. Don't get into the business. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Why is that? Why people are saying people aren't doing Airbnbs anymore? Because I don't, I don't see it. I mean, thankfully my listings are doing really well. I think That's- a lot of it, yeah, mine are doing amazing. I had the best months I've ever had, ever. Right. Every month is better than the last previous year. Right. Year over year is amazing. Right. I have year over year revenue growth. Like it's it's gangbusters. Right. Right. I think what's happening now is the competition is getting tougher in this business. Mm-hmm. Right. You have to have those extra amenity, the the towels, the coffee, the communication. You have to have that four point nine eight stars. Right. Has anyone that has less stars? I mean, when you're shopping around on Amazon, right? Right. Are you getting the four star product against the four and a half star competitor? And even on Amazon, I'm like crazy. I like look at the four and a half stars. I'm like, well, exactly how many is it? You go to like the actual stars and it's like 4.6 or 4.7. Right. You know, like a lot of people care about that stuff. For sure, man. So the reviews are key. And I think more importantly, I've learned, I've learned a lot about this business. I'd say out of the Airbnbs I have now, my oldest one. So it's like, when I say oldest, like an older home, uh-huh. right? Uh, not listing, just home is older. The home is older. Yeah. As opposed to like a updated modern home, uh-huh. you know, all these new landlords that are coming to all the new listings that are coming out, they're, they're like remodeled places. So all the places that aren't remodeled and that are older are going to suffer. Like they're going to see a decrease. I see. So there is a little bit of that. Let me ask you something about the ratings. So if you are, if you have your first listing, it was a beautiful home and you did an incredible job, got super health status, all that good stuff. Then you put a lo- less desirable listing on. Do you benefit from that super health status? Absolutely. If the listing's automatically super health. Would you suggest that? Would me putting a normal listing versus a really good listing on it, would you still recommend that because it may impact the uh, super notes, uh, the rating status? So I don't think an older listing, like an older home, will affect the ratings, right? One of my oldest homes has the best ratings, 4.98. So I'm just saying that you're gonna get less revenue per night on those older homes. Got it. That doesn't mean that you're gonna get a lower rating. The rating should still be high because of the service you provide. Got it. But I think a lot of people are are suffering in this business because A, they have bad ratings, B, maybe their home's a little bit outdated and they have bad ratings, right? Combination. And C, I think it's better, let's talk about regulation. Airbnb regulation. I would argue that it's better to invest in an Airbnb in a regulated market. And people would think, well, you're crazy. Like, areas of competition, less competition. If it's the wild, wild west, you know, there's people buying in Arizona that, that were buying in Arizona. Now, Arizona's Airbnb is like upside down. Why? Because in the state of Arizona, the state law, it says, hey, cities, fiefdoms, you can't prevent Airbnbs. So, like, city of uh, Phoenix, or Flagstaff, they can't enact a law. The mayor, the city council, they can't enact a law that says we're banning Airbnbs because the state law doesn't allow them. So it's just the demand is so high. There's so many of them, and well, the supply is so high. The the supply is so high. There's the, so many of them. 
that the demand is not keeping up with the supply. Got it. So that could be a part of the equation. So I agree, maybe it's not so much fake news in areas where, hey, you get a home, you, you get stamped by the city, you get your, your license. Hmm. Like I'm, I just bought in Mammoth, but there's regulations over there. You can't, you can't do single family homes or certain zoning in areas where you can do and can't do Airbnb. Got it. Right. You're able to position an Airbnb in LA, seems like you're winning. Yeah. Like there's regulations, right? Like for instance, right now in LA, you can't Airbnb a property you don't live in. Absolutely. It has to be a primary residence. Right. Right. You have to live there for, and what is a primary residence? Maybe you can chime in. Isn't it arguable? What if I'm, so let's talk about primary residence. Okay. What if I, I'm worker well now, it's post COVID. Mm -hmm. right? Hypothetical. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be on the beach in Hawaii this month. I'm going to Miami later. I just want to travel. Yeah. So it's where does the majority, it's just the majority. Okay. And if it's completely even, I think it's like the luck of, you know, you get to choose. So it's just really majority of okay. where you're staying. Stay. So if you're two months staying in LA in your primary residence, mm -hmm. and you travel the rest of the time. In different regions? Yeah. Yeah. You can be your, your your LA residence. It's your primary residence, right? Right. It's on your tax return. Right. Right. You know better than me. No, that's true. If you have that kind of lifestyle, right? Yeah. Two months, and then the rest, you just every month somewhere else, because you can't be anywhere longer than two months of course so what is the the la license allows you to do i think 120 days yeah and then you could get the extension and then you can get the extension which how does that even make sense i think that extension allows you because then you're pretty much sharing a unit or something like that i think the extension allows you to essentially extend your prime to extend to uh, rent out your home all year i mean it's the whole year but but it's kind of counterintuitive because right it's your primary residence how do you Maybe it's the the whole the beach example I just mentioned. You're no, I think one or two months in LA, and the rest of the time you're. I think the intention is uh, that they're expecting you to rent out a room in your home. Interesting, maybe possibly. Yeah. The other aspect of it is, listen, I mean, the city council can talk all they want about oh, we city of council of LA, yeah, talk all they want about oh, we want to protect tenants, this and that. How much revenue? Is the city of LA receiving from short from Airbnbs? I looked it up. Um, I think it's, it's a very sig significant it's amount. It's like 11, 11% of the budget. Or I, I think it's one of the top lines of the gross re yes. gross revenues to yes. the city. Yeah. And uh, there's no way they're touching that. That's exactly right. Right. Follow the money. Yep. They're going to they're gonna say a bunch of stuff right. to people, to their constituents to make them happy. But at the end of the day, they're not cutting 11, 12, 13% of their budget. Right. It's not happening. It's, it's too big of a pot. Yeah. No, it's uh, it's it, it's definitely a little bit interesting how that's achievable. I just got my extended home permit. Oh, nice. So I'm awesome. Super <laughs> excited about that. Um, you know, you've helped me a lot throughout the way. So thanks, Itai. Uh, Itai, we're, we're kind of running out of time. I could go all day with this and I have so much more to talk about, but... um. I just wanted to thank you again. Uh, I had an incredible, incredible discussion with you. I hope uh, we can have you on again. Absolutely. I know you probably missed 30 other calls and uh, <laughs> helping clients uh, with their unlawful detainer matters and whatnot. But uh, thanks again and hope to see you again. Awesome. Thank you. All right, man.